It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Kicking off a brand new week of discernment. Tackling tough questions. Comparing what people say to the Word of God. And trying to have a little bit of fun along the way. I mean, what's the point in doing theology if it has to only be dry and stuffy? All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think more biblically and to think critically and to challenge the things that are being said in the name of Jesus Christ, God, religion, Christianity, out there by all kinds of people, pastors, bloggers, writers, uh, radio personalities. Everybody, including myself, gets to be compared to the Word of God. Boy, looking at the list here. Um, <laughs> I don't know what's happened if I've gotten... Uh, if I. Is it spring cleaning that that happens to people? Maybe, maybe some, maybe my wife's pregnant. No, she's not. I, um, yeah, I've uh, I've got so much that I could be talking about today. I actually know some of the things we're going to be talking about this week, and it's a little bit odd for me to be that organized. So, um, want to before we talk about today's program, I want to tell you what's coming up this week. Why you want to stay tuned this week. Um, one of the things we're going to be implementing uh, starting this week is the emergency gospel sermon. And uh, when we do a bad sermon review, those of you who subscribe to the podcast via iTunes will also see in your iTunes box the ability to download an emergency gospel sermon. And <laughs> the, the emergency gospel sermon is designed to to give to basically give you the blood of Jesus Christ and him crucified so that you can scrub your mind with it uh after we review a, a stinker sermon here at uh, fighting for the faith just want to let you know that's going to be coming up um l- this week also we're going to be answering questions regarding baptism and re- and limited atonement that have been coming in via email so uh, that's all coming up this week. Uh, part of what we're going to be doing this week also is we'll be reviewing uh, for, uh, a sermon from across the pond. That's not going to happen today, but uh, it'll be later this week uh, from Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. I think he's a vicar. I, I have to go and check my email to get his exact title. But, uh, you know, we exchanged emails over the weekend, and I asked if he had some sermons that he can send me of his because I would like to hear them. And I couldn't even get five minutes into his uh, sermon because he started the sermon that I want to review off with a, a, a prayer where he preaches law and gospel in the prayer. It was It's just very fascinating, worth listening to, and uh, looking forward to reviewing that later this week. Um, probably tomorrow or Wednesday, depending, we're going, to act, we're going to review Perry Noble's Easter sermon. Now, I said that it didn't belong in the uh, as a contestant for the worst sermon of Easter Sermon of 2009. I stand by that assessment, but there's some serious issues that we've got to take care of there. And uh, just so you know, um, I understand that there's a lot of you out there that are listening via podcast, and you're a few days behind, and and uh, I don't want you to feel rushed when it comes to uh, catching up on the uh, the Worst Easter Sermon of 2009 contest. 
we're going to have voting available through this coming weekend. We'll cut it. So basically, a week from now, next Monday, a week from today, is when we will announce the winner of the uh, of the worst Easter sermon of 2009. Now, r- currently, right now, it's a neck and neck race between uh, Scott Hodge of uh, Orchard Valley Church in Aurora, Illinois, and uh, and, and Joel Osteen. Now, <laughs> Now, and the nice thing is I did double-check. You can only vote once uh, using that uh, uh, that uh, widget that we put up there at Fighting for the Faith. So if you go to fightingforthefaith.com and you would like to vote for your favorite worst uh, uh, sermon of uh, Easter sermon of 2009, you can still do that. We'll make it available for, so that all of our podcast listeners have an opportunity to kind of catch up. And uh, you'll have that if, uh, basically from a week from today. Uh, on today's program, we're going to be listening to uh, a, a segment of uh, Bart Ehrman. I don't know if you're all familiar with Bart Ehrman. This is a guy who uh, was an evangelical Christian who is now turned into basically an angry liberal. And uh, I've been reading his book, uh, Jesus Interrupted. Thank God I didn't buy the hardback on that thing. I I, uh, I, I purchased the Kindle version of it. And uh, there's a I don't have a Kindle, but I on my iPhone uh, there's a free piece of software from Amazon.com that allows you to read Kindle books on your iPhone. And as I've been working my way through this, I'm just thinking these are the dumbest arguments ever. He's he's the poster boy for basic liberal higher critical uh, criticism of the Bible. And you know this, these dumb liberal arguments. I mean they've been around for centuries now. And they're not compelling. They're rather sophomoreish. And uh, he uh, went on to uh, Stephen Colbert's uh, The Colbert Report on Comedy Central, and Colbert just let him have it. And uh, definitely, we're, we got to listen to this because it was it's worth the listen. Uh, then we're going to be doing a segment uh, that I've entitled God in the Box or God as He Has Revealed Himself, the subtitle of which is uh, How the Doctrine of the Trinity is Actually a Very Relevant Doctrine Today, and we'll be talking about that. Um, we're going to be answering the question, what makes a church, uh, a church or a church body orthodox? Is it their orthodox doctrinal statement that's hanging, collecting dust on their website? Or is it the preaching from the pulpit? We'll talk about that. And uh, then we're going to, I'm going to launch into uh, a little bit more foundation work that I want to get to and do before we review Perry Noble's sermon. And I have uh, some very, very deep, deep concern about uh, the doctrines being taught at uh, Perry Noble's church in Anderson, South Carolina. And that's a New Spring church, especially after reading an an interview uh, with uh, New Spring's chief strategic officer. His name is Tony Morgan. I follow his blog and I follow his uh, tweets on uh, Twitter. And uh, he just did an interview with Rev Magazine. And I got to tell you, after reading that, um, I am deeply, deeply concerned about what's going on over there at, uh, at uh, New Spring Church. And then uh, kind of as a counterpoint to that, we're going to be listening to a lecture given by Paul Washer last year at the deeper conference on basically the idolatry of decision theology. And uh, this is not going to be a sermon review, but it's going to be what I consider a good lecture. Now, Paul Washer, you know, he is a, I think he's a reformed guy. 
uh, worships in a Baptist church, we obviously don't see eye to eye on several doctrines, and that's okay. Where he's right, he's right, and uh, he is absolutely spot on in his uh, attack, biblical critique of what's going on in America regarding decision theology. Now, all of us are familiar with what this is. I, I doubt there's anybody listening to me who hasn't had some exposure to decision theology. And uh, Paul Washer does a bang-up job at, at last year's Deeper Conference, and, it's, it, and we're going to review this entire lecture basically as a means of laying some groundwork for the stuff that we're hearing coming out of uh, Newspring from Tony Morgan's interview. And then that'll hopefully get us prepared to listen to uh, Perry Noble's uh, Easter sermon and ask the right biblical tough questions about it. And uh, because ultimately what it comes down to is what is the gospel that he's preaching and what does he view man's problem as? What is the problem that Christianity fixes? Why did Jesus come to earth? And uh, and there's definitely the more I review this, the more I look at this, the more concerned I am about it. And so we're going to we're going to take a harder look at it and basically uh, see what we can do on that front. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to dive into today's program content. Um, here is uh, this is the audio from uh, Bart Ehrman's appearance on the Colbert Report. And again, this is just brilliant. My guest tonight says that the Bible contradicts itself. Oh, so Jonah swallowed the whale? Please. Please welcome Bart Ehrman. Get brave man to come back. But a guy served you your head on a platter last time. Yeah, I remember okay. you thought that, yes. Oh, 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 yeah. I thought that, and so did God. <laughs> Who sees all and knows all, my friend. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I, From what I understand, Colbert is a practicing Roman Catholic uh, raised on the Baltimore Catechism. And so uh, he's, not, uh, he's not a theologian, but he's not... Um, in the dark when it comes to theological matters. And so I I think, you know, Colbert has this shtick that he does, but some of what we're going to see here is not just his shtick. It's actually uh, his own convictions and beliefs. So pay close attention. It's worth a listen. you got a new book here. It's called Jesus Interrupted, Revealing the Hidden Contradictions in the Bible and Why We Didn't Know About Them. Oh boy! It, it, by the way, th- even the subtitle of that book is just darn stupid. Um, all of the stuff that Airman has brought up—I mean, these are the same tired old arguments used by liberal higher critics for the last couple of hundred years. They've got a pretty strong pedigree of basically people who deny the supernatural and who kind of miss the point. And uh, again, I've been reading the book and just thoroughly. <laughs> underwhelmed by his uh, arguments. But anyway, we continue. All right, I'll bite. (laughs) Why is the Bible a big fat lie and I'm an idiot for believing it? (laughs) 
Uh, well, so yeah, the book is about how scholars for a long time have said that the Bible is filled with discrepancies and contradictions. None that I read. Uh, right. None of the scholars I read, sir. Uh-huh. Uh, the Bible has books that claim to be written by people who didn't really write them. Uh, and the Bible uh, uh, shows that, in fact, some of the earliest uh, teachings of Jesus uh, aren't what became the standard doctrines of Christianity. What are you talking about? Well, things like... Uh, standard doctrine of Christianity, I believe in God, the Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, that kind of stuff? That kind of stuff. <laughs> Notice how quickly that rolled off his tongue. He, uh, he, uh, <laughs> that would be from the Apostles' Creed. Um, Colbert is familiar with this, with these things, and uh, and like I said, I think there's more to this than just his normal comedy shtick. In fact, uh, doctrines like the divinity of Christ, the uh, Trinity, these were later uh, formulations that they weren't the original teachings. Yeah, exactly. What are you talking about? Hogwash. Jesus was the Son of God. (laughs) Even Jesus recognizes that. You read you read the Gospel of John ever? Uh, okay. Yeah, I, you I read the Gospel of John? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, Does well, Jesus well, say he's the Son of God in there? Uh, Jesus Does actually, Jesus say he's the Son of God in the Gospel of John? Jesus actually says he's divine in the Gospel of John. He says, I and the Father are one in the Gospel of John. Yes, he I does. accept your apology. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Listen to Airman here. This is Here comes a great liberal line. Does Peter, does St. Peter not say, you are the Messiah? You are the Son of God. The, uh, the problem is that early Jews didn't understand that the Son of God was a divine being, but was a human being. Again, he's not interacting with the text at this point. He's going outside of the Bible to try to figure out what the Bible doesn't mean. Uh, for example, in the oh, Old Testament. Oh, you know the early Jews better than the early Jews. That's what you're saying. <laughs> wait a second, wait a second. What am I hearing? You're saying we've got a misinterpretation of Jesus and the early Jews are to blame? I can't believe you're blaming this on the Jews. Right. That is so anti-Semitic. Yes. So uh, the early Jews didn't think that the Son of God was a uh, divine being, but a human being. Uh, the Christians were the What's ones What's the son of a duck? It's a duck. Yes. <laughs> right, exactly. And that was the point in uh, John chapter 5 uh, when they took issue with Jesus calling himself the Son of God. The Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. And they said, uh, you know, you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God by calling yourself the Son of God. Oh, boy. This guy's a, a, a PhD from Princeton. Right. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it can right. raise the dead like a duck, it's a duck. Exactly. So, uh, well, in the Old Testament, for example, King Solomon is called yes. the Son of God. Uh, but nobody thought he was God. Uh, the, he also didn't have miracles. He didn't raise the dead. Uh, but there were plenty of people in the Old Testament who did do miracles. And but they didn't the call themselves the Son of God, so. Exactly. So, Two points uh, make a line. That's all I'm saying. All right. <laughs> that was two points make a line. <laughs> So uh, what eventually happens is that Jesus, who's portrayed as a human messiah in the earliest parts of Christianity... No, he's not. He's always been portrayed as the divine son of God. ...actually comes to be seen as himself divine. So uh, this isn't found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example, that Jesus is a divine being. The hogwash! That is just totally a lie! Oh boy! I mean, you have to you have to like willfully being ignoring stuff. Let's take a look just at you know like the opening to the Gospel of Mark. 
Hang on a second. Can not help but, you know, interject at this point? Oh, boy. Uh, uh, okay, the, the opening sentence, the opening verse, <clears throat> at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the first verse in the gospel of Mark. Uh, what does that mean? Well, the Jews back in Jesus' day knew exactly what that meant because... They took issue and considered Jesus a blasphemer for calling God his father. You know what? Hang on a second here. Let me find that, too. We're going to do a little bit of work here. Uh, John, I think it's in John chapter 5. John Cinco. Okay, do Hello. Uh, Verses. J. Hang on a second here. Finger fumble. There we go. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Yeah, hang on a second here. Equal. There, and I want to limit that. Sorry for the interruption while I look this up on my computerized Bible. Equal. And I want to end the Gospels. Okay. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Ah, here we go. John chapter 5. It's in uh, I'm gonna, it's around verse 18. John chapter 5. And we're going to look around verse 18. We remember our three rules for biblical uh, interpretation, context, context, and context. Uh, we start at verse 14, John chapter 5. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning. Something worse might happen to you. He had healed a guy uh, kind of against his will in a way. And... Uh, and the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Uh, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work, uh, at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Colbert's point to Bart Ehrman, the son of a duck is a duck. The Jews understood that quite well because in John chapter 5, verse 18, uh, the Jews took issue with the fact that uh, Jesus called himself the son of God. And the very first sentence in the Gospel of Mark, which Bart Ehrman claims that neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke actually uh, uh, teach that Jesus is divine, which is absolute piffle and poppycock. Why? Because the first sentence of Mark is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we continue. Let us uh, let me go a little farther here. There's this wonderful little story in, John, in Mark chapter 2, uh, by the way, which also disproves Ehrman's little theory. Um, uh, we read... Um, starting at verse 1 in Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there, was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get uh, him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. After digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Uh, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, 
Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? By the way, the answer to the question there, who can forgive sins but God alone, is um, uh, only God can forgive sins. So uh, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up your, take up your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them, and this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So, um, you think Mark portrays Jesus Christ as divine, as God? Calls him the son of God. Remember, the son of a duck is a duck. And it's one of his earliest miracles in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus healing the paralytic. But the first thing he does is forgive his sins. And it's only God who can forgive sins. You tell me, um, is Jesus portrayed as divine um, in uh, in other places other than the Gospel of John? As if that, well, see, we can somehow pit Mark and John and Luke against each other. No, we can't. Anyway, we continue. It's just, these are dumb arguments. John's last. The first three were rough drafts. Then you get to John, <laughs> and he gets it right. Right. So, uh, but John, in John, Jesus is clearly divine. I mean, he says in John 15, uh, I am divine, you are the branches. Uh. God is not a fan of puns, sir. <laughs> but That is one of the seven deadly sins. But I, I, I think he does like your show, though. Okay, good. I think so, too, because I'm willing to defend him right now, okay? You say that uh, you got a problem with uh, conflicting versions of Jesus' crucifixion. Yes. Okay, first of all, I'm insulted. You should talk about this the day before Good Friday, but I'll give you a shake right here. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Now, listen carefully, okay? The way the liberals argue is, well, we have these different conflicting stories about some of the details uh, regarding the resurrection, uh, you know, as to who went to where, at what time, how many people were at the tomb, were there angels or not angels? And so their solution is the resurrection didn't happen. It's absolutely stupid. By the way, if you the, the real simple way of understanding this is just go and rent the movie Vantage Point. Yeah, that's right. There's a movie out there called Vantage Point. It's about and it's about an assassination attempt against the president of the United States while he's visiting a foreign country. Uh, the story is a little obnoxious in this sense that it goes, it takes the same event and it makes you watch it like five different times. if from different vantage points. And if you're standing in one place, you saw one thing. If you were standing in another place, you saw another thing. And if you say it were standing in another place, you experienced another thing. It's not until you put all of the things together that you come up with some kind of a cohesive way of putting the puzzle pieces together. The nice thing about the Gospels is that each of the Gospel writers is true to the perspective that they experienced when it came to Jesus' resurrection. And their details... All agree the tomb was empty and Jesus was raised from the dead. The liberal solution is they made it up. Yeah, 
again, that particular explanation doesn't make a bit of sense considering what the apostles, what it cost the apostles for confessing that they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But watch what Colbert does with this. All of the Gospels do mention that he's crucified, right? That's right. Aren't you kind of burying the lead then? Aren't you nitpicking by saying that he said this thing in one and that thing in the other? The banner headline is, God dies. Yes. Uh, Well, of course, he's not God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only in John. That's a lie. Absolute lie, Bart. Oh, um, the, uh, the deal is that the different Gospels portray the crucifixion differently, very differently. It's not a happy story in any of them. No. Uh, yeah, and the one thing they're all united on is that he was crucified. Uh, no, well, how, what do you mean differently? Well, so uh, in, in Mark's Gospel, for example, Jesus goes to his death in deep agony over what's happening to him uh-huh. uh, and doesn't seem to understand why it's happening to him. At the end, he cries out. No, what are you talking about? He doesn't seem to know why it's happening. Like, Jesus was completely clueless. Why are they crucifying me? What version of the Gospel are you reading? God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So you're basically saying, Bart, that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's basically saying he doesn't understand why he's there. Um, Have you ever stopped to think that the bigger issue there is that Jesus Christ is actually being punished for our sins? And the worst thing that's happening to him is that the father has turned the back, his back on the son. When you read Luke's gospel, he's not in agony at all. He's more concerned about these women who are weeping for him on the way. Oh, man. Um, how long was he on the cross? Five minutes, Bart? Or was he on the cross for six hours? I mean, seriously, anybody with a junior high education can argue the way out of this crucifixion when he's being nailed to the cross he prays father forgive them they don't know what they're doing and on hanging hanging on the cross instead of saying why have you forsaken me he says father into your hands i commend my spirit does any of the gospels claim to be the definitive exhaustive uh, timeline of the entire events that took place uh while jesus was on the cross no each one each of the gospels Uh, Matthew is an eyewitness testimony, and Matthew writes of what he saw. Mark is more than likely the preaching notes of the Apostle Peter and is faithful to what he saw and experienced. Luke is, he took his, uh, he created his gospel by interviewing the eyewitnesses, and John is an eyewitness account. Each of them writing from their vantage point. None of them claiming that they are giving the most the, the complete exhaustive timeline version of events. By the way, um, in a court of law, these little nuances in the story actually help prove the veracity of the eyewitness testimony instead of uh, if, if there was collusion, they would all be in lockstep with each other. Exact same story, each and every person. It is true. So he's certainly crucified in both Gospels, but his demeanor in the face of death is radically different. And what people have done is they've taken Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel and combined them together into one big Gospel, which is unlike either Mark or Luke. Let me tell you a little parable, okay? (laughs) Four different blind men are stumbling along through the jungle, and they fall into a pit where an elephant has already fallen, okay? 
they're like, what is this thing in here with us? So much greater than we are. And they start touching it, and one person thinks it's a wall, and one thing thinks it's a tree, and one thing thinks it's a snake, another one thinks it's spears. Isn't it just possible that you're missing the point and that Jesus is an elephant? <laughs> an elephant so big that each of these four men could only see part of him. <laughs> Interesting that he's taking that story and flipping it back on Airman. <laughs> I'll tell you what, why don't we both die and let God settle it? That would be fine with me. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so that was uh, Bart Ehrman's appearance on Stephen Colbert and uh, basically pitching his book, uh, Jesus Interrupted, which, by the way, is nothing more than a primer on the same old, tired, liberal, higher criticism, and the arguments that you just heard are that lame that two-dimensional, that stupid. Anyway, I'm very glad that, Steve, that somebody even like Stephen Colbert was able to show that. All right, we're coming up on our first break here, and I uh, want to remind you that if you would like to email me, you can at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can look me up on Facebook. And uh, and or you can follow me on Twitter. And uh, the my screen name on Twitter is Pirate. Christian. All right, we'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. 
Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! How am I supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next... When you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of Scripture. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself. Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today.
Making some notes here. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. And I am Chris Roseboro, your servant in Jesus Christ. I want to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to uh, pay our bills and continue to bring this radio program to you. And, in fact, your financial support is vital for us to continue to operate. If you would like to partner with us, you can by going to fightingforthefaith.com uh, and clicking on the Donate button. Or you can uh, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here. Um, the next segment here is called God in a Box or God as He Has Revealed Himself. Subheading that I've entitled this is How the Doctrine of the Trinity is Relevant. One of the things that people basically say, you know, that whole doctrine of the Trinity thing, you know, it's three and one, one and three. Who cares? What's it matter? Yeah, I just want to be a Jesus follower and, and uh, love God and love my neighbor and. And see, that's the point, uh, really. Um, in fact, kind of, I don't know if you all have ever experienced this. I have. And it's rather, um, the first time it happened was a rather disconcerting, is if you find yourself uh, conversing with a group of Christians and you make bold or certain um, uh claims about God and you talk about God and as if you know as if you can know something about him you are actually likely nowadays to have one of these Christians turn to you and say you know you're putting God in a box really putting God in a box so and basically they don't like talking about God in any kind of propositional truth claims whatsoever. In fact, they might even throw a Rob Bell quote at you. Uh, remember we played this from Velvet Elvis uh, a couple weeks ago. This is Rob Bell saying, uh, the moment that God is figured out with nice, neat lines and definitions, we're no longer dealing with God. We're dealing with um, somebody we made up. So apparently the moment you've got fi- God figured out with nice, neat lines and definitions, you're no longer dealing with God, but you're dealing with something you made up. To which I basically say, piffle and poppycock, um, in the scriptures we have God's revelation of himself, and that divine self-revelation that uh, gives us some very hard and neat lines and definition about definitions about who God is, what he is like, what he has done, and what true worship of him entails. This idea that you can't define God and that God is mysterious and and God is is you can't you, you just got to embrace the mystery you know you you don't want to you don't want because because as soon as you think you have God figured out then you know he like stops being God you know um th- these arguments are dumb they're stupid and they're actually anti biblical um for so you know the bible itself is god's word okay it is god's word it doesn't have its origin in human uh, in the in the human imagination in fact just by way of a little proof texting here a uh, second timothy 3:16 we're all familiar with it all scripture is god breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, it says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what Scripture says of itself. And if you understand that, that that Scripture isn't a human product, it is a divine product, then you understand that Scripture is God's divine self-revelation. And if you want the ultimate revelation of who God is, then you, you need to look no further than Jesus Christ, who is none other than God in human flesh, regardless of what Bart Ehrman in his temper tantrum liberalism says. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. And Jesus had some clear, neat, hard lines to him. So rather than saying that God is like this this big mystery and and you need to embrace the mystery and and, and as soon as you think that you've got God figured out, then he no longer is God, you basically need to look that person in the eye and say, are you smoking something? Seriously. Maybe you've spent a little bit too much time whiffing the incense in your emergent church uh, because uh, it's not that we're making stuff up about God. This is what God has said about himself, okay? Now, many of you listening to Fighting for the Faith know that I've said a few things about myself, okay? I'm a white guy. I have a goatee. I'm overweight, and I'm a nerd, Right? So you could say, you know, have you heard Chris Rosebro? Oh, yeah, I know who Rosebro is. He's that nerdy white guy with the goatee and he's overweight. Would would I cease to exist? Because, uh, you know, radio provides the ability to have a little bit of mystery about me, does it not? Here I am speaking to you, a complete disembodied voice. What does Rosebro look like? Does he look like what his voice sounds like? We all have pictures of what he looks You know what? We better just embrace the mystery of Rosebro because if we, as soon as we figure Rose, if soon as we say we've got Rosebro figured out, then he ceases to be Rosebro. This, this is stupid. This, this, it sounds so spiritual. It sounds so educated. And it's really just Tom Foolery. <sighs> anyway, we continue. Okay, God wants us to know who he is. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the Bible. We wouldn't have this self-revelation from God. In fact, he tells us that he would like us to worship him in spirit and in truth. That being the case, there's some things that we there's, we can know truth about God. And it's, it, us knowing that truth doesn't cause God to go and disappear. Poof, there we go. Wait, I, I claim to know some truth about God and poof, he just disappeared. Uh, no, because the truth that we know about God is what God reveals about himself. Anyway, so, but we must always be careful to not allow our imaginations to go beyond what God has revealed about himself in his word. Uh, That which God has not revealed about himself is still mystery. Granted, here's the deal. We don't know everything about God. 
We don't. We probably know a fraction, a small, tiny fraction, about who who he is, what he's like, all that kind of stuff. We barely even know the guy. Okay, but what we do know, we can say we know with certainty because he revealed it about himself. Ambrose uh, put it this way. He says, the things which God wishes to be hidden are not to be examined. And the things which he has made manifest are not to be rejected, lest we as ingrates be improperly curious toward the former and damnably ungrateful for the latter. The Apostle Paul put it this way, for we see through a, a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part and and then I shall know fully, even now as I have been fully known. Notice that Paul didn't say that we can't know. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, by the way. Paul didn't say, uh, for now we can't see at all, <laughs> but then we will see face to face. He says, no, we see through a mirror dimly. It doesn't say we know everything, but what we do know, we know. He doesn't say we can't know, but that we know only in part. But that part we do know is sure and certain, and it has neat lines and clear definitions. Now, here are just some of those neat lines and clear definitions that we glean directly from God's holy word about the one and only true God. That God is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me, you ready? Here's some clean, hard lines about God. We believe in one God who is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was begotten of his Father before all worlds. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He was begotten, not made, and he's being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and he was made man, and he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and from there he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead." and whose kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped, and he's glorified. He who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one Christian and apostolic church, acknowledge one baptism for their mission sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That, by the way, is one of the ancient three ecumenical creeds the Nicene Creed. Now notice this little confession here about God contains clear, clean, neat, and tidy lines and definitions. Yet not one of them pertains to a God that we've made up. Instead, those clean, neat, and clear definitions richly, beautifully, and poetically summarize the one true God who has revealed himself to us in the Holy Scriptures. Rather nicely. 
So why is the doctrine of the Trinity so relevant? Because it tells us the truth about who God is and his substance and the fact that he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is truth about him. And we worship him in spirit and truth. In fact, if you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you're not a Christian because you're not worshiping the one true God. You don't even know who the one true God is. You're, you're instead... In those situations, you're actually worshiping a God of your own imagination rather than the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. Now, what I find funny is that Rob Bell, in saying that we need to, you know, we can't, as soon as we define God that, you know, we're worshiping something we've made up, he actually says this about uh, the Scriptures. Um, This is from an uh, article, an interview that uh, he and his wife did Kristen, by the way, is Rob Bell's wife in uh, Christianity Today on the Emergent Mystique. And uh, this quote starts off with his wife, Kristen, saying that life in the church had become so small. It worked uh, for me for a long time, but then it stopped working. The Bells started questioning their assumptions about the Bible itself and discovering that the Bible is a human product, as Rob puts it, rather than the product of divine fiat. Who does that sound like? Oh, I know, Marcus Borg. Anyway, the Bible is still in the center for us, Rob says, but it's a different kind of center. We want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. Yeah. Um, What's funny is that Nicene Creed that we just read, with all the clean lines and no mystery, um... I'm sitting right here. I've got a quote from Irenaeus. Uh, by the way, Irenaeus, uh, he wrote a book called Against Heresies, and he's one of the early church fathers, and he learned the Christian faith from a gentleman by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp learned the Christian faith directly from the apostle John. Uh, Irenaeus wrote um, in the mid to late 2nd century, so roughly about a 100 years after the life of the apostles, uh, Irenaeus writes. And uh, in chapter 10 of uh, his Against Heresies, listen to this interesting confession of faith regarding uh, God. See if you detect any mystery here, or if this sounds eerily like the Nicene Creed and its sharp lines of and, and the God that it's describing. Um, uh, Irenaeus writes, he says, the church, though dispersed through, the, through our... Uh, uh, through the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. The church believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth uh, and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth uh, from a virgin, and the passion and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven into the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his future manifestation from heaven in glory of the Father, to gather all things in one, and to raise anew all flesh of the whole human race, in order that uh, to Christ Jesus our Lord, and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father." that every knee would bow in heaven and earth and all things confess that uh, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wow. That was written um, almost 200 years before the Council of Nicaea. And 
Irenaeus is confessing a Trinitarian one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and many of the details in the Nicene Creed are also present in Irenaeus's confession of faith, which he didn't make up. It's not like Irenaeus is the author of this little confession. Remember, he learned the faith from Polycarp, and Polycarp learned it from the Apostle John. And yet there it is, uh, 200 years before the Council of Nicaea, a Trinitarian explanation of the one true God uh, that almost, well, not perfectly, but that mirrors many of the details given to us in the Nicene Creed. Did you detect any mystery going on there? Uh, did you feel any uh, v- vagueness? Did, or did you instead feel the sharp, clear lines and definitions regarding the one true God? And that uh, Irenaeus's confession sounded a lot like uh, the things that we hear in the Bible. And the reason why it sounded like them is because all of this stuff was taken from the Bible. So here we've got Irenaeus, just, just about 100 years after the life of the, of the apostles, confessing a faith uh, that includes all the details from their apostolic writings. And lo and behold, I mean, early, 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 early on, we have a Trinitarian definition of the one true God. My question is, why is it that Rob Bell... By talking about embracing mystery and saying that if we divide, if we define God with clear and tidy definitions, I mean, he sounds completely different than Irenaeus. Which, by the way, um, Irenaeus, if you read his book Against Heresies, he wrote it against the Gnostics. Yeah, he wrote it against the Gnostics. In fact. If you would like to read Irenaeus Against Heresies, you can Google it. And the the text, although it's not written in modern English, is available online for you to read. If you would like to read Irenaeus's Against Heresies, you could read it online. Just Google it. And his, his name is spelled I-R-E-N-A-E-U-S, and his book is called Against Heresies. If you were to read Against Heresies... Irenaeus writes against people who sound a lot like Rob Bell. They don't sound... In fact, Rob Bell sounds nothing like Irenaeus. Rob Bell and his meditative Eastern mystery embracing no definitions of God kind of thing sounds a lot like the heretics that Irenaeus called heretics and wrote against. So this idea of putting God in a box is ridiculous. And the other thing is, is that when we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, we understand who God is and we can worship him as he has revealed himself. Now, what's fun is that uh, we we can look through ancient liturgies and we see these ancient liturgies literally calling upon the triune God for mercy. In fact, uh, I've uh, dug this up from a a really ancient liturgy and um, 
I call it, may the immortal, invisible, immutable God have mercy on us. I'm not sure what the real name of it is. Um, it may be, a, it, it's an ancient form of the Kyrie. So it, you know, um, it, 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 the intro it to this thing goes like this. Blessed be the Holy Trinity and the undivided unity. We confess to him who has done with us according to his mercy. We bless the Father and the Son together with the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever and ever. That's just the opening to this thing. And already we've got more content in this little a piece of the liturgy than we do any of these Seven Eleven praise songs. Um, to the God, the Father, Kyrie, you font of goodness, unbegotten Father, from whom all good things do proceed, have mercy. Kyrie, you who sent him who was born to suffer for the sin of the world in order that you might save it, have mercy. Kyrie, you who bestow the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit by whom heaven and earth are filled, have mercy. To the Son of God, we pray, Christi Hagi, you who share heaven, who are a participant in royal glory, to whom the highest of the angels standing at your command continually do sing, have mercy. Only begotten Son of God, who the holy prophets miraculously predicted would be born into the world through the virgin, have mercy. Christi, hearken from heaven our, to our prayers, to our prostate minds. You whom we devoutly worship here on earth, we cry to you, dear Jesus, have mercy. To God, the Holy Spirit, Kyrie, bountiful spirit, united with the Father and the Son in, subs- in subsistence of one substance proceeding from both the Father and the Son, have mercy. Kyrie, who then Christ was baptized in the waves of the Jordan, appeared in your glory in the form of the dove, have mercy. Kyrie, kindle our hearts with divine fire so that we are made worthy to praise you forever. Have mercy. So what happens is, is that when we know, when we can clearly, biblically define God, because God has revealed himself to us, that information, those definitions, his actions, his, the things that he has done, we can worship God Praise God. This stuff informs our worship, adds depth and dimension to it, richness and beauty to it. Rather than saying, this is the air I breathe. Oh, brother, what does that mean? Instead, we worship God for what he has done and who he has revealed himself to be. This, I'm telling you. The stuff that our ancient Christian brothers and sisters have basically willed to us as an inheritance, these are deep, doctrinal, biblical treasures. We shouldn't be throwing this stuff out. out. We should be digging and and finding this stuff because this is deep, rich worship of the one true God as he has defined himself and based upon the actions that he has done, based upon clear lines and definitions, and not for a second are we worshiping anything that we've made up. Not for a second, because all of this stuff is faithful and true to who he is, how he's revealed himself, and what he has done. Is the doctrine of the Trinity relevant? Oh, yes. 
not only is it relevant for you to believe, it's relevant for you to be confessing, and it should inform your very prayers and worship of the one true God. All right, we're coming up on our second break here. I want to remind you that you can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cannon fodder written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. All right, we're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Our numero dos. We're going to be answering the question, what makes a church or a church body orthodox? Is it their officially posted uh, statement of belief, which you can view on their website? I mean, that's what they officially believe. Or is it what they teach from the pulpit? Yeah. 
Yeah, and then after that, we're going to be talking. Uh, we're going to be lo- reviewing the interview that uh, was done by the chief strategi- strategy strategist officer uh, over at uh, Perry Nobles Church, uh, New Spring Church in Anderson, uh, South Carolina. Uh, there's some very disturbing things there. We're going to have to unpack a little bit of that and talk about what's uh, bothering us there uh, theologically. And then we're going to be listening to Paul Washer on a lecture uh, from last year's Deeper Conference, and he's going to be talking about basically the idolatry of decision theology. And I tell you, this is a barn burner. It's really, it's good stuff. All right, so what makes a church or a church body orthodox? And I don't mean Eastern Orthodox. Well, you go to, they they, uh, worship in Constantinople. See, that makes them orthodox. They have a copper dome on their, no, no, and it has nothing to do with icons. When I'm talking about orthodox, I'm talking about a church body that basically confesses the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith and their teaching and practices, basically they teach the gospel correctly. We'll just start there. They understand who God is, who Christ is. They correctly convey what the gospel is and how we're saved, all of that. Now, is it they're officially posted, viewable on their website, uh, belief, statement of belief? Is that what makes them orthodox? I mean, if a church has a on their website an orthodox statement of belief, does that automatically make them an orthodox uh, church body? Answer, no, it doesn't. Francis Pieper, who is a Lutheran theologian, answers this question rather bluntly and correctly in volume three of his book entitled Christian Dogmatics. Yeah, I wonder how many, uh, how many hundreds of those would sell nowadays. Anyway, in his book uh, Christian Dogmatics, he writes, With regard to the orthodox character of a church body, note well, one, a church body is orthodox only if the true doctrine is actually taught in its pulpits and its publications and not merely officially professed as its faith. Now, let me give you an example, by the way. It's something you can, we can all relate to. The Presbyterian Church USA, okay, uh, they still officially claim that the Westminster Catechism or Westminster Confession of Faith is their official confession of faith. Uh, but many, many, many Presbyterian Church USA churches are not even remotely close to Orthodox uh, because that's not what's being preached from the pulpit. What's being preached from the pulpit is the same schlocky stuff that you get from Bart Ehrman. Okay? So, um, uh, Pieper continues, says, not the official doctrine, but the actual teachings determine the character of a church body because Christ enjoins that all things whatsoever he has commanded his disciples should actually be taught and not merely acknowledged in an official document. That's the point. Um, so he, here's the deal. Listen, remember all of the sermons that we've reviewed here. I mean, I think the vast majority of them that we can point to and say, hey, well, these people have an orthodox doctrinal statement. But is the Christian faith being taught from their pulpits? No. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's, it is patent that faith in Christ will be created and preserved through the pure gospel only when that gospel is really proclaimed. 
Peeper's point number two, a church body does not forfeit its orthodox character by reason of the casual intrusion of false doctrine. That happens everywhere. The thing which the Apostle Paul told the elders of Ephesus, quote, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's Acts chapter 20, verse 30. And came true not only in the apostolic church, but also in the church of the Reformation and will occur in the church to the last day. A church body loses its orthodoxy only when it no longer applies Romans chapter 16, verse 17, hence does not combat and eventually remove the false doctrine, but tolerates it with reproof and thus actually grants it equal right with the truth. And by the way, Romans chapter 16, verse 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So there you have it. Uh, Francis Pieper, and I think he's spot on. So when we, when we do an evaluation of a church or a church body, the, 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 doctrinal statement or belief statement that's collecting dust on that part of their website that hasn't been changed since they since they pers- first put it up there doesn't mean hokum the question is what is being preached from the pulpit is sound biblical doctrine being preached and passed on are people hearing of Christ his deity the holy trinity the one true god in human flesh died for the sins of the world. Is that what's being proclaimed, or are they proclaiming something else? They cease to be orthodox when they cease to preach the Christian faith. Anyway, I wanted to point that out because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about next. All right, here we go. This is a document, and the name of the interview is Incredible Work of God. Uh, the author is Brian Prophet, who's from Rev Magazine, and he's interviewed Tony Morgan, who is the chief, chief strategist, chief strategy officer for New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. Tony Morgan actually used to be up at Granger Community Church and then made the uh, the trip from um, Indiana down to uh, to South Carolina. And this interview is disturbing. Doctrinally and theologically, it's disturbing. And I know people are going to go, what? I mean, the people are coming to Christ. People are, are becoming Christians at New Spring Church. How could you How can you say it's disturbing? Well, let me read. Um, the uh, Brian asks, he says, Tony, in your blog on January 25th, you said, quote, during the last month, over 650 people have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior at New Spring. That's a pretty incredible statistic. Tell us more about what's behind that. Now stop for a second. I mean, I mean, this is the problem, okay? These guys are basically saying, shut up about your doctrine and theology and stop shoving your doctrine. Don't you understand we're bringing people to Jesus Christ? Look, 650 people have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior uh, during, you know, during the, the month of January. Who are you guys to be criticizing us? You see, and you know, that's supposed to, oh, well, I, I'm supposed to go, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, what was I thinking? I mean, I, it's, uh, oh, bah, bah, bah. I mean, uh, 600 and, wow, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll leave you guys alone. 
No. We have to be asking the question, what's the gospel that was being preached? Because numbers don't mean anything. Remember, the Mormon church is growing rather rapidly. Islam is definitely growing rather quickly. Should we conclude that Mormonism and Islam are from God because they're growing rapidly? No. Should we assume that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached at New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina, because 650, they claim 650 people accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Answer, no. I don't care what their doctrinal statement says. I care what they preach. Because it's not what their doctrinal statement that matters. If they're not preaching their doctrinal statement, if they're not preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then there weren't 650 people who have become Christians. There's 650 people who've become members of, of New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. But uh, whether or not they've actually joined the ranks of the kingdom of God, that's debatable if... They're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read. So Tony answers. He says, well, I just talked with one of the guys at the campus. We launched last July in Greenville. And since that launch, we've already baptized 200 people at just that campus alone. It's interesting because one of the criticisms we hear of megachurches is we're just pulling in people from other churches. I'm sure some of that's happening. But the reality is that people are meeting Jesus for the first time and beginning to take steps through baptism. Now, the important words in that sentence were, and beginning to take steps. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, next paragraph. When it comes to how Perry Noble, senior pastor at New Spring, approaches ministry and how he teaches, it basically comes down to, quote, just listening to God and doing what he says. Just listening to God and doing what he says. Law or gospel? Law. We continue. We can go back to some of the great fathers of our faith, even go back to Moses and just watch how many times he tried to just listen to God and do what he told him to. You know, uh, Tony, read Hebrews 11. It was by faith that all of the patriarchs were able to do the things that they did. It was the obedience that comes from faith. You're describing naked, legalistic obedience. Anyway, he continues. He says, and as a result of that, uh, of that God blessed Perry's ministry, and that's what we're finding here at New Spring. So the reason why God has blessed Perry's ministry is because Perry is obedient legalistically obedient. We continue. Now, I know in my life, when I accepted Christ and experienced life change, I didn't keep that to myself. I wanted to tell others about it. I think that's what we're seeing here. People are experiencing life change. We're seeing practical things like healed marriages, winning freedom from addictions, freedom from financial challenges, because once God gets a hold of your life, he brings order to it. When that starts to happen, people tell their friends about it. Stop. Where in the Bible do we hear about the gospel of life change? Go back and listen to la the, the last week's program that I did on the abundant life. 
There are plenty of Christians throughout history who experienced life change all right when they confessed Christ as their Savior, when they were given faith, when they repented of their sins and became Christians, they lost their marriages, they lost their jobs, they lost their lives. They suffered and were persecuted. The Bible doesn't promise positive life change. In many senses, being a Christian could cost you everything. Yet, Tony says, I know in my, in my life when I accepted Christ and experienced life change. We've got a problem here. Is this the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Shouldn't the sentence read, I know in my life when I came to faith and experienced peace with God through Christ's shed blood on the cross and his forgiveness of my sins, I couldn't keep that to myself. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when I accepted Christ and experienced life change. And what are people experiencing life change in? We're seeing practical things like healed marriages, winning freedom from addictions, freedom from financial challenges. All of this is based upon people applying principles. Basically, as he said, um, hearing what God wants you to do and then doing it. I continue. I sometimes get frustrated when people talk about our church as being too big. I ask, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to tell people that they can't tell their friends about us anymore? It's not like we're trying to go out and get more people. In fact, many times Perry is challenging people to find another church if, they're, if they aren't interested in engaging and being an active part of, of God's, what God's doing here. Did you hear that? Perry is challenging people to find another church if they aren't interested in engaging and being an active part of what God's doing here. Tony, whatever happened to the concept of a Sabbath rest where people come to church to hear God's word? What's all this activity? Anyway, he says that sounds, uh, the, the, the uh, interviewer says that sounds great, but I suspect the vast majority of church leaders would say, that they are also trying to listen to God and do what he tells them to do. Maybe one of the other distinctions about New Spring is that, that we're keeping it very simple. Sundays we're preaching the gospel and inviting people to take a step into relationship with Christ. That's what Sundays are about. Now, I, my question is, how are you defining gospel? Because I, I listen to almost all of Perry's sermons and uh, barely, rarely hear the gospel. I hear it from time to time, but I don't hear it every Sunday. Uh, anyway, we continue. Beyond that, the next steps are pretty simple. We, we're asking people to connect in membership and then serve in the church. It's not a very complicated discipleship, discipleship strategy. Okay, connect in membership and serve. Okay, um, there's something missing there. Um, let me pull up the Great Commission here. Jesus Christ uh, in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Hang on, I'm pulling this up in my computerized Bible. Accordance, by the way, if you're a Mac user, that's what I use. Jesus says, therefore, um, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always. The word there, important word there is, everything and obey. All right, we continue. Let's see here. All right. So 
Tony says, uh, maybe one of the other distinctions about New Springs is that we're keeping it very simple. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're asking people to connect to membership and then serve in the church. It's not a complicated discipleship strategy. Where's the part about discipling them with uh, all of what Jesus said? Anyway, he says, I think one of the problems most churches have is that they keep on plugging in new opportunities for people to connect without unplugging anything. So we see men's groups, women's groups, small group ministries, Bible classes, mission opportunities, serving opportunities, this event and that event. And we're all doing all we're doing is creating confusion for people. This past week, I was in northeast Georgia and I drove by this intersection. I saw a building that had 20 different signs on it. The first time I drove past the building, I had no idea what those signs were all about. I just knew that there were a lot of signs. I uh, pulled over to take a picture of it. It turned out that all of the signs were trying to sell property in the community. They were pointing in different directions. They had different names of companies that people could con- uh, contact. Those signs were doing uh, were doing people no good because there were so many that they were just creating confusion. My concern is that we're doing this, that in the churches. People are coming through our churches and being offered 20 opportunities or more to make a choice about their next step in church, but all they're seeing is noise. Uh, we decided that we, what we think a devoted follower of Christ looks like in our church and what simple steps we're going to ask people to take so that they are encouraged to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Again, this sounds like legalistic pietism. I'm not hearing the gospel at all. I'm not seeing it at all. In fact, listen to this. We need to decide what we think a devoted follower of Christ looks like. No, Tony, you're wrong. The question is, what does the Bible say a disciple of Jesus Christ is and how they are made? Anyway, you don't get to decide that, by the way. None of us gets to decide that. That's decided for us by the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, that guy. Anyway, at New Spring, our options are carefully structured as a result of that. People are growing in their faith. How are you defining that, Tony? They are also still engaged in their life where they can have an impact on other people. Uh, where they're, they're sharing life with other people. They're also inviting people to, uh, become, uh, to become a part of what's happening at New Spring, and more importantly, asking people to become a part of the family of God. Uh, my question for you, uh, Tony, um, Acts chapter 2, I think it's verse 42. Yeah, it says, you want to know what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. Um, you, what, listen to this, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they, the, uh, the, the new converts to Christianity after uh, uh, Peter's great sermon at Pentecost, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, Tony, um, that's what a disciple looks like, somebody who's devoted to the apostles' teaching, uh, which we find in the Scripture, uh, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Um, you don't get to decide those things. God does. So my question is, uh, how do you guys look when compared to Acts 2.42? We continue. It's very basic, but it, uh, because we've kept things so simple and so focused, it's actually having a bigger impact on people's lives. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? What would happen if we only asked people to invest their time in corporate worship and Bible teaching, reading their Bibles, serving others, and making disciples, rather than focusing so much on transferring knowledge, uh, we focus on helping people love God and love others and make new disciples? 
Where's the part about them having faith in Christ? Where, where's the where's the gospel? Maybe groups and classes and ministry programs aren't the discipleship strategy. Maybe encouraging personal disciples and serving and making disciples is the discipleship strategy. So basically, they um, they've taken Erwin McManus's uh, idea regarding discipleship. We're not going to tell you what the Bible really says. We're just going to get you to get to work. You you do discipleship by doing. Is that what that's all about? Well, so my question comes back to. Um, Life change, obedience, where's the gospel in all of this again? And how do you know somebody's become a Christian? Because uh, they've made a decision to follow Jesus and are taking steps and being actively plugged into the church. With that, those questions in mind, uh, we're going to listen to... um, a missionary by the name of Paul Washer, and um, this is called The Idolatry of Decisional Evangelism. And you need to listen to this very carefully. Some of you may have heard it already because this has been out for a little bit of time, but you need to hear it again and in this context because this is going to provide some of the foundation work that we're going to be looking at when we review Perry Noble's sermon tomorrow. This is a good lecture from a good guy. This is I consider Paul Washer to be a very strong brother in Jesus Christ. Again, I don't agree with him on every doctrine. There are certain things I consider him to be biblically wrong, and he would consider me to be biblically wrong conversely. And yet we can both say that we're brothers in Jesus Christ. With that, uh, here's uh, Paul Washer on the idolatry of decisional evangelism. I'm going to begin with um, something of a, a lecture, and partially it's going to be read for the first several minutes. I just don't want to miss anything that I've, I've put down here. I feel that it's, it ought to be said. I'm going to be talking about the gospel, the gospel call, the gospel invitation. First of all, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father... I come before you in the name of your Son. I worship him, praise him. Lord, I I know it is by grace that you know all things. And if it was not for grace, Lord, who could stand before thee? Oh God. I pray that you would get glory for yourself, glory for your Christ, and benefit for your church. Help us, Lord, to understand and apply. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want to talk to you about this. When we look... At Romans 1.16, we understand that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. That might seem something unusual to us, that he has to make that statement, being an apostle, a principal carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you that Paul's flesh had every reason 
to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel he preached contradicted everything that was believed to be true and everything that was believed to be sacred in his culture. Now just really quick, I want to say this. Paul makes no attempt to become relevant to his culture. He makes no attempt to make treaty with his culture, adapt his message to the culture, repackage his message, or any of the other nonsense that's become so prominent in the evangelical community today. To the Jew, the gospel, Paul's gospel, was the worst sort of blasphemy because it claimed that the Nazarene who died on that cross, accursed, was the Messiah and the Son of God. To the Greek, it was the worst sort of absurdity because it claimed that this Jew from some out-of-the-way place was actually God in the flesh. Therefore, Paul knew that whenever he opened his mouth to speak the gospel, he would be utterly rejected and ridiculed to scorn unless the Holy Spirit intervened and moved upon the hearts and minds of his hearers. Now this is... All right, got to listen there. He would be scorned unless the Holy Spirit moved on the hearts and minds of the hearers. The Holy Spirit. People do not become Christians unless God the Holy Spirit makes them a Christian. This is important to keep in mind. There, are, there, is, there was <clears throat> a debate in Christianity over whether or not man is born sinful and unable to choose God or whether or not man was just kind of wounded when it comes to uh, the effects of sin. If you believe that man is capable of making a decision for Jesus Christ, you are either a Pelagian heretic or in great error in believing semi-Pelagianism. Man is dead in trespasses and sins, and the only way somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ is by a miracle wrought by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. It, is, it comes about through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the means of grace. We continue. That's what he knew. This is what you should know. If you're properly preaching the gospel, it will be scandalous. And if you try to make it less of a scandal, you no longer preach the gospel. Now, I want to just quote from a few contemporaries of primitive Christianity. Pliny the Younger writes, after examining the beliefs of two Christian slave girls under torture, he says, I discovered nothing but a perverse and extravagant superstition. In the dialogue, Octavius, by Manusius Felix, he derides the Christians saying, their ceremonies center on a man put to death for his crime and on the fatal wood. Of the cross. He goes on to say that Christians put forward sick delusions, a senseless and crazy superstition which leads to the destruction of all true religion. I know I may offend many on this, but most, most modern day church growth strategies used in evangelical churches, their main focus is to get around the very thing I just read. 
An oracle of Apollo preserved in the writings of Augustine in response to a man's question about what he can do to turn his wife away from the Christian faith says this, Let her continue as she pleases, persisting in her vain delusions and lamenting in song a God who died in delusions, who was condemned by judges, whose verdict was just, and executed in the prime of life by the worst of deaths, a death bound with iron. Lucian, he was basically the Voltaire of of antiquity, mocks Christians in his De Morte Peregrini as poor devils who deny the Greek gods and instead honor that crucified sophist and live according to his laws. In Origen's work Contra Celsus, Celsus declares, What drunken old woman telling stories to lull a small child to sleep would not be ashamed of uttering such preposterous things. Now, in our day, the primitive gospel is no less offensive, for it still contradicts every tenet or ism in our culture. Relativism, pluralism, and humanism. Now, let's just look at these for just a moment. We live in an age of relativism, a belief system based on the absolute certainty that there are no, that, that, that there are no absolute certainties. We hypocritically applaud men for seeking the truth, but call for the public execution of any man who believes he has found it. We live in a self-imposed dark age. Why? The reason for this is clear. Natural man is a fallen creature, he is morally corrupt, and he is hell-bent on autonomy or self-government. He hates God because God is righteous, and he hates God's laws because they censor him and restrict his evil. He hates the truth because it exposes him for what he is and troubles what is left of his conscience. Therefore, fallen man seeks to push the truth, especially the truth about God, as far from him as he can possibly remove it. He will go to any extent to suppress the truth, even to the point of pretending that there is no such thing as truth, or that if it does exist, it cannot be known or have any bearing on our lives. Realize this about the gospel. It is never a case of a hiding God, but of hiding man. The problem is never the intellect, but the will. I do not believe that the Bible gives any room for atheism. There are liars and God-haters who push the truth out of their minds, but there are no such thing as atheists. For although they knew him, you see... Like a man who hides his head in the sand to avoid a charging rhino, modern man denies the truth of a righteous God and moral absolutes in hopes of quieting his conscience and putting out of his mind the judgment that he knows must come. Now, the Christian gospel is a scandal to the man involved in relativism and his culture because the Christian gospel does the one thing that man most hopes to avoid. It awakens him from his self-imposed slumber to the reality of his fallenness and rebellion and calls him to reject autonomy, self-government, and submit to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we also live in an age of pluralism, a belief system that puts an end to truth by declaring everything to be true. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? 
when everything is true, when contradictory statements that are diametrically opposed, when both of them are labeled as true, you have the death of truth. Now, it may be difficult for contemporary Christians to understand what I'm about to say, but the Christians living in the first few centuries of the Christian faith were marked and persecuted as atheists. And you will be too. If a revival doesn't break out in this country, this is one of the reasons you're going to go to jail. Now, the culture surrounding the Christian was immersed in theism. The world was filled with images of deities and religion was a booming business. Men not only tolerated one another's deities, but they swapped them and shared them like baseball cards. The entire religious world was going on just fine until the Christians showed up and declared that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. They denied the Caesars the homage they demanded, refused the bend the, to bend their knee to all other so-called gods, and they confessed Jesus alone to be Lord of all. And therefore they were labeled atheists. The entire world looked on such jaw-dropping arrogance and reacted with fury against the Christians' intolerable intolerance to tolerance. Now I want you to look at something. Look at these words. Jaw-dropping arrogance. The same scenario abounds in our world today. Against all logic, we are told that all views regarding religion and morality are true, no matter how radically different they are or contradictory they may be. The most overwhelming aspect of all of this is that through the tireless efforts of the media and the academic world, this has quickly become the majority view. However, pluralism does not address the issue or cure the malady. It only anesthetizes the patient so that he no longer feels or thinks. Now, the gospel is a scandal because it awakens man from his slumber and refuses to let him rest on such an illogical footing. It forces him to come to some conclusion. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, and if Baal, follow him. The true gospel is radically exclusive. I never thought I would have to say this in front of a bunch of evangelicals. I never thought there would come a day when I would have to say such a thing to evangelicals that the gospel is radically exclusive. I never thought that we would begin to lose Christ as the only way. Now listen, the true gospel is radically exclusive. Jesus is not a way, but the way, and all other ways are no way at all. Now listen to this very carefully, because this is what is happening today. If Christianity would only move one small step toward a more tolerant ecumenicalism and change the definite article V in the Savior for the indefinite article A or A Savior, the scandal would be removed and the world and Christianity could become friends. Do you realize that? If we would simply say that Yahweh is a God we would have no persecution on our hands. 
If we would simply say that Jesus is a savior, I'd be on the Oprah Winfrey show, show. Do you realize that? All the scandal would remove if we just said he's our savior. You have yours, we'll have ours. We're not going to impose anything upon you. We're not going to wrangle in dialogue, nothing. If that's your way, you go with that way and I'll go with mine. If we would only do that, we would never be persecuted. But if we do that, Christianity ceases to be Christianity. We cease to be Christian. Christ is denied and the world is without a savior. We live in an age of humanism. Over the last several decades, man has fought to purge God from his conscience and his culture. He has torn down every visible altar to the one true God and has erected monuments to himself with the zeal of a religious fanatic. This is not secularism against religious mind thinking. Don't think that. Because the secularist has a religion. And oftentimes he is much more fanatical in his religion than any Christian ever pretended to be. Man has managed to make himself the center, measure, and end of all things. He praises his own inherent worth, demands homage to his self-esteem, and promotes his own self-fulfillment or self-realization as the greatest good. Now, if you don't think that hasn't crept into Christianity... then you've not read the book, Your Best Life Now. Because that's exactly what that's about. He explains away his gnawing conscience. He can't get rid of that. It's there to stay. He explains away his gnawing conscience as the remnants of an antiquated religion of guilt, Christianity. And he excuses himself from any responsibility for the moral chaos surrounding him by blaming society, or at least that part of society that has not yet attained to his enlightenment. Any suggestion that his conscience might be right in its testimony against him, or that he might be responsible for the almost infinite variations of maladies in the world is unthinkable. For this reason, the gospel is a scandal to fallen man because it exposes his delusion about himself. It convicts him of his fallenness and guilt. This is the essential first work of the gospel. And this is why the world so loathes true gospel preaching. Because the true gospel ruins man's party, reigns on his parade, exposes his make-believe, and points out that the emperor has no clothes. Now, the scriptures recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block and foolishness to all men of every age. And I'm going to say this later. It's not just a scandal. It's supposed to be. Who was one of the old, old revivalists that said, how could the world not get along? with the holiest man who ever walked on the planet, but it can get along with us? We're supposed to be a scandal. Now, we don't have to live like a bunch of fanatics. We don't have to do a whole bunch of crazy things to be a scandal. Just be faithful to this one proclamation. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, to seek to remove the scandal from the message is to make void the cross of Christ and its saving power. 
We must understand that the gospel is not only scandalous, but it's supposed to be. Through the foolishness of the gospel, God has ordained to destroy the wisdom of the wise, frustrate the intelligence of the greatest minds, and humble the pride of all men. To the end that no flesh may boast in his presence, but just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's gospel not only contradicted the religion, philosophy, and culture of the day, but it also declared war on them. Not a political war, not a military war, but a spiritual war of truth. It refused truce or treaty with the world and would settle for nothing less than culture's absolute surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Even to every thought of our mind being held captive to Christ. We would do well to follow Paul's example. We must be careful to shun every temptation to conform our gospel to the trends of the day or the desires of carnal men. One of the things about missions, there's all kinds of missions in this world. We don't need more missions. It's just most of them aren't biblical missions. Let me share with you something. Those of you who are budding missionaries. Missions is to be defined by the exegete and the theologian. The student of scripture, not by the anthropologist, sociologist, and those who are experts in the new cultural trend. We do missions and evangelism according to the sacred writings of Scripture, and we need no help from Wall Street. We have no right to water down the gospel's offense or civilize its radical demands in order to make it more appealing to a fallen world or carnal church members. Our churches are filled with strategies to make them more seeker-friendly by repackaging the gospel, removing the stumbling block, and taking the edge off the blade so that it might be more acceptable to carnal men. We ought to be seeker-friendly, but we ought to realize that there is only one seeker, and he is God. If we are striving to make our church and, a message, and our message accommodating, let us make them accommodating to him. That's right. Jesus Christ says he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the seeker. Not anyone else. So far, so good. I, I, I find no reason to interrupt him very often. It's just too good. If we are striving to build a church or ministry, let us build it on a passion to glorify God and a desire not to offend His majesty. To the wind with what the world thinks about us, we are not to seek the honor of earth, but the honors of heaven. Now, another thing I want to point out before we go to the preaching. Our message is not only scandalous, it's unbelievable. I want you to know that. It is an unbelievable message. As we have argued, Paul's flesh was not... Had it, or Paul's flesh had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel he preached. Yet there is still another reason for fleshly shame. The gospel is an absolutely unbelievable message. A ludicrous word to the wise of the world. As Christians, we sometimes fail to realize how utterly astounding it is when anyone believes our message. In a sense, the gospel is so far-fetched that its spread throughout the Roman Empire is proof of its supernatural nature. What could ever bring a Gentile completely unaware of Old Testament scriptures and rooted in either Greek philosophy or pagan superstition to believe a message... 
such a message about a man named Jesus. He was born under questionable circumstances to a poor family in one of the most despised regions of the Roman Empire. And yet the gospel claimed that he was the eternal son of God who was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. He was a carpenter by trade, an itinerant religious teacher with no official training, and yet the gospel claims that he surpassed the combined wisdom of the Greek philosopher and the Roman sages of antiquity. He was poor and had no place to lay his head, and yet the gospel claims that for three years he fed thousands by a word, healed every manner of illness among men, and even raised the dead. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem as a blasphemer and an enemy of the state, and yet the gospel claims that his death was the pivotal event in all of human history and the only means of salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. He was placed in a borrowed tomb, yet the gospel claims that on the third day he arose from the dead and presented himself to many of his followers and 40 days later ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Thus the gospel claims that a poor Jewish carpenter who was rejected as a lunatic and a blasphemer by his own people and crucified by the state, is now the Savior of the world, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and at his name every knee will bow, including Caesar's. Now, do you have any idea how impossible it is for anyone in Paul's time to believe this message? It is impossible. Who could have ever believed such a message except by the power of God? His point, impossible, impossible. It is impossible for anyone to repent of their sins and trust in this gospel message unless it is given to him by God. There's no other explanation. The, God would have, the gospel would have never made its way out of Jerusalem, let alone the Roman Empire, and into every nation of the world except that God had ordained to work through it. The message would have died at its birth had it depended upon the organizational abilities, eloquence, or apologetic powers of its preachers. All the missionary strategies in the world and all the clever marketing schemes borrowed from Wall Street could have never advanced the gospel, the foolish stumbling block of the gospel. Martin Hengel writes on the ancient scandal of the cross, To believe that the one pre-existent Son of the one true God, the mediator at creation and the redeemer of the world, had appeared in very recent times in out-of-the-way Galilee as a member of the obscure people of the Jews, and even worse, had died the death of a common criminal on the cross, could only be regarded as a sheer sign of madness. Now this truth brings both encouragement and warning. To those of us who preach the gospel, first, it is an encouragement to know that the simple, faithful proclamation of the gospel will ensure its continued advance in the world. Secondly, it is a warning to us that we not succumb to the lie that we can advance the gospel through brilliance, eloquence, or clever church growth strategies. Such things have no power to bring about the impossible conversion of men. We must cast ourselves with hopeful desperation upon the only biblical means of advancing the gospel, the bold and clear clear proclamation of a message about which we are not only not ashamed, but we believe in and glory in because it is the power of God unto salvation 
for everyone who believes. Now, I want to finish by saying this. We live in an unbelieving and skeptical age. Our faith is ridiculed as a hopeless myth. And we are portrayed as either narrow-minded bigots or weak-minded victims of a religious ruse. Such an attack often puts us on the defensive and we attempt to fight back and prove our position and relevancy with apologetics. I want to say this. I agree with apologetics. Although some forms of this discipline are quite helpful and necessary, we must realize that the power still lies in the proclamation of the gospel. We cannot convince a man to believe any more than we can raise the dead. That's right. He's absolutely right. Apologetics serves its purpose in helping you get to the point where you can proclaim the gospel. You cannot convince somebody to become a Christian by your great argumentation, your absolutely well thought out, perfectly pristine argumentation skills. No. It is only through the gospel that men repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Such things are the work of God's Spirit. Men are brought to faith only through the supernatural working of God, and He has promised to work not through human wisdom or intellectual expertise, but the preaching of Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. We must come to grips with the fact that our gospel is an unbelievable message. We should not expect anyone to give us a hearing, let alone believe, apart from a gracious and powerful working of God's Spirit. How very hopeless is all our preaching apart from God's power. How very dependent is the preacher upon God. All our evangelism is nothing more than a fool's errand, unless God moves upon the hearts of men. However... He has promised to do just that if we faithfully preach the gospel. Now, I want us to go to Ezekiel 37. Verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them around about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus, said the Lord God, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold sinew were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these, O breath, and breathe on these slain, and they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great 
army. I have just described the conversion of men. When you go out to preach, as we look at this text, you are always an Ezekiel. And you are always standing in a valley of dead bones. And behold, they are very dry. Absolutely 100% correct. We are, by nature, dead in trespasses and sin. We are not capable of helping ourselves out of this condition. That would be like you going to the mortuary and whispering to the dead person in the casket, you know, your life would get just a little bit better if you would just make a decision right now, take a step and, you know, put your foot outside of the casket and we'll help you out the rest of the way. Just come on, you know, you can do it. They're dead. And all evangelism is preaching to dead, dry bones. He is absolutely 100% correct. Now, certainly in the time of Ezekiel, there was no technique to bring life into lifeless bone. The marrow had completely dried out of these skeletons. They were nothing but dust. There was no technique, there was no persuasion, there was no power, there was nothing, humanly speaking, that could be done to bring these bones to life. That is evangelism. And you do well to learn it now. That is evangelism. Men are dead in their trespasses and sins. Yep. They are not only dead, they are in bondage to sin. What life they have is only life to follow the prince of this air. They are haters of God. They are enemies of God. They are blind. They do everything in their power to restrict and restrain every bit of knowledge that they already possess about God. They work with all their might to close down their conscience so it will no longer speak to them. They would rather suffer in a devil's hell throughout all eternity than bow the knee and repent and believe in your God. Now, go try to learn an evangelism technique to bring them to life. Give long, drawn-out altar calls. Tell all sorts of soupy stories. Manipulate their passions, their emotions, and the only thing you will have is a group of two full sons of hell. For men to be saved, there is only one way, and that is for one man like Ezekiel to step out in the midst of that valley and preach the only message God has promised to bless. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're looking for missionaries or when we're interviewing candidates, we want one thing. A man who knows that the ministry is an impossibility. That men cannot be converted any more than the dead can be raised and worlds can be brought out of nothing.
A man who realizes that he only has a few weapons of warfare, but they are powerful. The preaching of the gospel, intercessory prayer, and sacrificial dying to self-love. Give me men and women like that. We'll see the gospel advance in this world. But the more you depend upon the arm of the flesh, the more churches attempt to grow, not by being biblical, but finding the latest thing to appeal to the greatest number of people. As long as we're doing that, we will never see the power of God. And the church, in its desire to become relevant, makes itself look like a fool in the midst of its enemies. The church today in America looks like a six flags over Jesus. Because if you draw people using carnal means, you will have to keep people using carnal means. Now I want to take the rest of the time that we have and I want us to look at the basic invitation for men to come to Christ that is most prominent in America today. Pay real close attention to this. Those of you who attend seeker-driven churches or defend a seeker-different approach, you need to listen to this and interact with the biblical truth that Wash is bringing out. A standard contemporary invitation. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? Did he come in when you prayed? Were you sincere? And you are now a Christian. Welcome to the family of God. This is such a sacred calf, a golden calf. In the evangelical community today, that I am more attacked for this than anything else. But I assure you, this is not biblical language, and it is not found in the greater part of Christian history. This method that we cannot do evangelism without is neither biblical nor historical. And he is dead right. And has led us to exactly what we're complaining about. The greater part of the United States of America claims to be born again. And they are not. The greatest field of evangelism today is found in church buildings. I don't want to say it's found in the church because everyone in the church is truly converted. But in church buildings. You say, oh, we have a lot of churches, Brother Paul. No, we have a really... We have a large group of nice brick buildings on beautiful yards. But the glory of God has since departed from them, and Ichabod has been written across the door. Now let's look at this invitation. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Many times this is accompanied by an explanation of all that Jesus can do for the person. Fix their life, their marriage, their finances, their self-esteem. So you walk up to what we know about a sinner. He is self-centered. He's autonomous. He wants to do his own thing. He has his own dreams. And he is in love with himself. 
So you walk up to this man and you say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he goes, what? God loves me? That's fantastic. I love me too. Well, this is wonderful. And you're even saying that he loves me more than I love me? Now that sounds impossible. How could anyone have such a great love? And God has a wonderful plan for my life. Oh, I have a wonderful plan for my life too. And you're telling me that if I accept this Jesus, he will help me with all my wonderful plans and I can have my best life now? Yes. Well, then I'll take a God like that. You got two of them? Do you see that? Now you say, Brother Paul, it's, it, we don't mean it that way. That's a, but that's the way it's coming out. Now you're saying, Paul, you're being very hard, full of satire. Yes, I am. I am. But look, everybody is lamenting the fact that this country believes it's saved when it's no more saved than a... It's as lost, as they say in Alabama, as a ball in tall grass. But no one wants to point to what the problem is. And the problem is, even when we preach the gospel correctly, then we go to this thing of how to invite men that's not biblical or historical. We get them to jump through a few evangelical hoops and say yes to the appropriate questions, and we popishly pronounce them to be saved. And when they believe that false religious lie given by a religious authority, then when someone comes later and tries to preach the gospel to them because they're living in the world, they won't listen. Because a religious lie has so much power. Then the next question. Do you know you're a sinner? And oftentimes, it's really not given too seriously. It's kind of like, hey, you know we're all sinners, don't you? And if the person says yes. How many sermons have we reviewed here where sin is never even brought up? And yet these are supposed to be evangelistic, seeker-driven services. And at the end, they even have some kind of a version of the sinner's prayer. And never once in the service or in the sermon is sin even explained as to what it is biblically. People have no concept of sin. Yes, I know I'm a sinner. Then the question is, do you want to go to heaven? Yeah, I do. Then would you like to... Pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart. It'll only take five minutes. Only five minutes? Yes. Because the Bible says, but as many as received him, to them they gave to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So would you like to receive Jesus? Because that's what the Bible says. Only take five minutes? Only five minutes. Sure. And then afterwards. Often after a person prays or is led in a prayer by the evangelist, he or she is assured that if they were sincere, then Jesus has definitely come into their heart. Because he promised he would, and if he didn't come in, he's a liar because they were sincere. How many people do you know believe they're going to heaven because they're not trusting so much in Christ as they are the sincerity of the decision they made a long time ago? That's an important distinction. What are you trusting in? How sincere you were when you prayed that prayer with tears even maybe? 
Well, that rarely happens nowadays because who even knows they're a sinner? Well, I prayed the prayer and I sincerely meant it. That means that, uh uh-huh. Go back and listen to the Ultimate Fighter sermon review we did uh, last Friday. Tell me if anybody who sincerely prayed that prayer really is a Christian. Listen to it. Oftentimes, after a few minutes of counseling, a few minutes of counseling, they are immediately presented before the church and welcomed into the family of God. Now, you tell me I'm wrong. They come down front. I've seen it so many times. They're given over to a counselor who's been trained in a package counseling form. They're talked to for about five or ten minutes while the invitation rolls on, and then immediately they're presented before the church, our new brother and sister in Christ. And that's the last most of them will ever, ever hear of conversion counseling. And then what will happen? If they never grow or if they doubt their salvation, they are taken again back to that day when they prayed and questioned regarding the sincerity of their decision. You know, it's funny. uh, From my point of view, uh, so many evangelicals, quote, attack the sacraments, yet they've turned the sinner's prayer into a sacrament. The sinner's prayer somehow is the means of grace. Yet that it's not. If they ever come to the pastor again doubting their salvation, he'll take them back to that day again and say, well, did you ever pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? Yes. Were you sincere? I think so. Then it's just the devil bothering you. If they never grow in the things of God, their lack of growth is attributed to the lack of discipleship or the belief in the doctrine of the carnal Christian. One, one convention that I know of came to the conclusion that 60% of all its converts never attended church. And their answer for that malady was, we have to do a better job in discipleship. No. Jesus, his sheep, they hear his voice. And they follow him. Whether you disciple them or not. Now, we ought to do discipleship. We ought to do discipleship. My friend, back in the 70s, discipleship became the big thing, personal discipleship. We have just as many people leaving the back door of the church as entering into the front door of the church because we're not doing personal discipleship. No, it's because we're not preaching the gospel correctly and we're pronouncing people converted who are not converted and they went out from us because they never were of us. That's right. Hmm. I don't think this is a very seeker-sensitive uh, presentation. Now, you've got to understand this. We deal five minutes with a person, their conversion, and then spend 50 years trying to disciple a goat into a sheep. I'm not saying this because I'm an angry person. I'm saying this because I'm angry because countless people are deceived. The problem is not liberal politicians. It's evangelical preachers. Amen. If they're ever challenged regarding their conversion because of a lack of fruit or overwhelming worldliness, they defend their hope of salvation by once again affirming the sincerity of their prayer and the confirmation of their religious leaders. If any counseling is done, a person is usually admonished to turn from his or her backsliding and to begin serving the Lord again. However, the validity of their conversion is never examined or ever challenged. 
So many people. For example, children evangelism. I would not let my child attend 98% of the Sunday school classes and vacation Bible schools in this country. And I'll tell you why. A bunch of children are brought in and they're told wonderful stories about Jesus. And then, how many of you children love Jesus? I mean, except for the kid in the back with the leather jacket and the signs on his back that have been imprinted by a cultic, you know, satanic cult. Every, other, every kid in that class is going to stand up and go, I love Jesus. Well, how many of you want to go to heaven? Oh, I do. How many of you want to pray this prayer? I will. And then they're marched off to baptism. And a lot of times the baptismal is dressed up like some kind of a happy party time with graffiti so that they really enjoy it. And then when they're old enough to rebel against their parents, they do. And they live in gross immorality and sin. And then when they're about 25 or 30 after college, they decide they need to straighten things out because morality is really a better way to go. So they rededicate their life and they continue attending church once a week, having just enough morality to dim their conscience and send them straight to hell. That's right. Morality doesn't save you. Let me me, hang on a second. Had to grab the Tony Morgan uh, interview out of the uh, trash. I know in my life when I accepted Jesus and experienced life change. People are experiencing life change. We're seeing practical things like healed marriages, uh, winning freedom from addiction, freedom from financial challenges. Uh Uh-huh. Just enough morality. Just enough morality in the form of biblical principles to dim your conscience as you're on your way to hell. Where's the gospel? That's what's going on. And when little Johnny wanders off the path and begins sleeping with his girlfriend, taking drugs, selling drugs, doing everything else, his mother and his father and his pastor goes to him and says, you're a Christian, so you need to stop living that way. Instead of saying this, you made the profession of faith in Christ, you were baptized in his name, and for a while it seemed that you did walk with him, but now you have turned away from the faith and you have proved possibly that you never knew him and you've been reprobate from the beginning. Repent and believe the gospel. Flee from the wrath to come. That's the difference. I've got to get a different group. They used to throw rocks. I'm beginning to worry. Now, I want to give you a biblical alternative. God loves me and I You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What about instead, this modern mantra should be replaced by a proclamation of who God is. He is the creator, sustainer, and Lord of all things. And he is worthy of your honor and obedience. Now, I want you to just listen to this. In Exodus, God's proclamation, the Lord... The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. One of the greatest revelations of God in the Old Testament. Everyone knows that. Moses hid in the cleft of a rock. God proclaims his glory to Moses. And look at Moses' response. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. So instead of saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, tell them who God is. Yep. Because if you give them a God made in their own image, I guarantee you they'll accept him. 
but he won't be the God who saves. You tell them who God is. You exalt God before them and tell them that everything in their life is going to have to bend toward his will. He is not like you, old man. Repent and believe. Now, does our gospel presentation make men excited about what God can do for them on this earth or about who God is? Important question. Because over and over and over again, these seeker-driven churches, we're not going to tell you about your sin. We're going to get you excited about how God can make your life better. Is that the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's hear what Paul Washer has to say about that. Now let's go to our questions. Do you know you're a sinner? My dear friend, the question is not, do you know you are a sinner? The question is this. As you have heard me preach the gospel, has God so worked in your life that the sin you once loved, you now hate? You go up to the devil and ask him if he knows he's a sinner. You say, well, yes, I am, and a mighty fine one at that. Mm -hmm. Someone says, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Do they know what that means? That's like someone says, I've accepted God. But when you begin to hear their definition of the God they've accepted, you realize it's not the God of the Bible. In the same way, a person says, I'm a sinner. That could mean anything. I don't have enough love for myself. You must use the Scriptures to teach them. The Holy Spirit using the sword. To penetrate their heart and to show them what it truly means. I was preaching years ago. And they had counselors all prepared and everything. And there was this lady leading up the counseling group. And she did not like me at all. And uh, so one night I was preaching. And there began a move of God. People over towards the left started weeping. And then they just went started going across the auditorium. People were weeping. Some almost convulsing. And I hadn't even finished the sermon, and a girl ran up and was just laying across the steps. Another person, they started weeping. And I looked up at the counselors, and the leader looked at me like, and I went, and I kept preaching. And finally, after I got through preaching, she took a step forward, and I realized she's going to bolt on me. And so I went down there, and I stood beside her, and she goes, and I said, And finally, she just looked at me and took a step, and I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, Sister, don't touch the ark of God. It is the God of Israel who is wounding these people with regard to their sin. Do not comfort the soul that God is breaking. Leave them alone to God. So you see, the question is not simply, do you know you're a sinner? But dear friend, do you know what it means? And has God so begun to work in your heart that you're beginning to see sin as God sees sin? Are there seeds of an attitude, a divine attitude of hating sin as God hates it? You're boasting over sin as it turned to shame. Is God doing something? Now, do you want to go to heaven? That's the question. Do you want to go to heaven? You ever had anyone say, well, no, I'd I'd rather go to hell. I've had a few people do that. But most of the part says, yes, I would like to go to heaven. My dear friend, understand this. Everyone wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. The question is not, do you want to go to heaven? The question is, do you want God? Political theory, this next election, it is all about a utopia. 
It is all about making a wonderful place for men to live. Even godless men want a place where they get everything they want. But the question to the sinner to whom you are witnessing is, has God done anything in your life? Is there any treasuring of Christ? Can you, are you ashamed of the way that throughout the history of your life you have ignored Him, hated Him, been apathetic toward Him? Is there a new desire to follow Him, seek Him, know Him, delight in Him? Now, let's look at some of these texts. Because if someone answers all the questions, yes, then they're asked... Do you want to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? We've all done it. Does it bother anyone that this formula or language is not found in the New Testament? Bothers me. I mean, we don't have, you know, Mark chapter 1, Jesus coming to Israel and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, who would like to accept me into their heart? We don't see on the day of Pentecost... Okay, I see that hand. I see that hand. How many of you want to come forward now? Get them all forward. Everyone sees you. You can't go back to your seat. Now pray this prayer with me. You say, Brother Paul, you're making a mockery. Yes, I am. I am. I don't know any other way to say it. You say, but I got saved that way. You got saved in spite of that way, not because of that way. But, Brother Paul, we have all these wonderful texts. Okay, let's look at them. But as many as received him. Do you honestly believe that means the sinner's prayer? Do you honestly believe that means, if you don't feel comfortable praying, repeat this after me? Is that what that means? I mean, look at it. Where do you get that? One evangelist said to a guy who didn't even want to follow him in a prayer, he said, okay, I'll tell you this. I'll say the words, and if it's what you want to say to God, squeeze my hand. Behold the power of God. To receive him, I believe, should be interpreted within the context of the theology of John. It means to open up one's life. To ongoing fellowship or communion with the risen Christ. John 17, 3. To receive Christ or feed upon Him as the sustenance of one's life. John six fifty three. Lest you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You see, a man is saved only by faith. Only by faith. Believing what God has said about God, about Himself, about the atoning work of Christ, the person of Christ. They're saved. But in that moment of salvation, of belief, they are opening their lives to the person of Jesus. And just because they prayed a prayer with a certain degree of sincerity is no true evidence because the heart is deceitfully wicked. How can you define the degree of sincerity in your own heart? You see, the evidence in, throughout all the New Testament it is this. You believe unto salvation and the evidence you believed is this. 
You are saved only by faith in Christ. But if you believe in Christ, your life will be open more and more to communion and fellowship with Him. It is not this flu shot mentality of an invitation of the gospel. We call men to repent and believe. And if they repent and believe truly in that moment, they are saved in that moment. But the evidence is more than just the sincerity of a prayer. It is a continuation of the working of God in their life through sanctification. Now, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. First, we must say something about the heart. It represents the core essence of what a man is. It is the seat of his intellect, mind, emotions, and will. Therefore, it is absurd to think a man can believe in Christ with his heart and it not have a radical effect on the rest of his life. Let's look at the language. Would you like to receive Jesus in your heart? What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? Believe in your heart, but we've changed it to, would you like to ask him to come into your heart? Believe in your heart means to believe with the very core, the very essence of who you are. It doesn't mean you open up some secret chamber and ask him to come in. It is the testimony of Scripture and the interpretation of all sound evangelical scholars that we are saved by faith alone. So why does Paul seem to add confession as a requirement of genuine conversion? Let's look at the text again. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul, throughout the entire book of Romans, has said salvation only by faith. So why is he now adding confession? Paul is not contradicting the doctrine of faith alone, but is teaching that our public confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the evidence of believing in the heart. If someone is truly converted, they will publicly confess Christ in word and deed. That does not mean the same thing as presenting themselves before the church the night of their supposed conversion. If someone is truly converted, they will publicly confess Christ in word and deed. Why do I add word and deed? Because Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who confesses me as Lord. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I am not saying that we are saved by faith and works. Not at all. I am a grace preacher. What I'm saying is that salvation involves a lost doctrine. It's called regeneration. And that when God saves a man, he is regenerating his heart, turns him into a new creature. And the evidence is this. He will live like a new creature. And he will confess Christ. That is, the man who has truly believed in his heart, his life will be marked by a biblical confession of Christ in word and deed. You will be able to see, with his, hear with his mouth and see with his life that his faith is a genuine saving faith. Now... I want to give you, I'm put this in a, I want to put this really quickly in a cultural perspective. Let's say that we're all a church, about 20 people, 
first century Roman Empire. You know from the epistle of Romans that these Christians are being put to death, some of them. They're dying like sheep. All right, now let's say that we have a... a um, we're 20 of us, and we all work construction. So we're working on a, some kind of a building there in Rome. Construction, no problem. Beautiful day. It's lunchtime. We're taking a break. Spring, we're laying out in the grass, having a good time, resting. And all of a sudden, though, we hear this. We hear drums. We look up, and we see soldiers coming. And they're carrying a little altar. And on that altar is a little bowl of incense and a little fire. Built And we become terrified. As all the construction guys come to their feet, most of them unbelievers, and there we are, a little church in the midst of them, the soldiers rally us all together, and they say, come forth, pay homage to Caesar. And so the first guy, unbeliever, goes up there and gets a little bit of incense, throws it in the fire and says, Caesar's Lord. Walks off as happy as he can be. The next one and the next one. And finally it comes to the first of us, the Christians. And one of us walk up, Soldier prods him with a spear. Pay homage to Caesar. Jesus es Kyrios. Jesus is Lord. And he dies. And the next one of us. Jesus is Lord. And he dies. And the next one of us. And we have taken that truth that Paul is teaching right here. That if you truly believe, you will confess Christ, even though it cost you your life. We have taken that beautiful truth and reduced it down. If you pray a little prayer before a bunch of people in a church in America, you can be guaranteed you're saved if you think you were sincere. That's not what it's talking about. Again. The moment a person calls upon Christ in faith, they are saved. But the evidence of salvation is not that one time in their life they were sincere when they prayed a prayer. The evidence of their salvation is, is there genuine repentance? Is there faith? And do those both evangelical graces continue on in their life and grow? In other words, the evidence of justification by faith is the ongoing work of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. First of all, this is not given in the context of a gospel invitation. Do you realize that? Christ is not knocking on the door of a sinner's heart. Nowhere does it say that. But he is knocking on the door of a wayward church. That's the context. This ought to raise some red flags for us. I said that to an evangelist one time, and he said, yeah, I know, Brother Paul, but it works. Secondly, I find it interesting that we use this text to give sinners the assurance that if they open up their hearts, Jesus will come in, even though this text does not specifically or primarily address conversion or the opening of a heart. On the other hand, we do not use Acts 16.14, which specifically and primarily speaks about both conversion and the opening of a heart. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Why don't we ever use that text? Thirdly, 
instead of merely inviting the sinner to open up their lives, would it not also be appropriate to lovingly aid the sinner in self-examination to evaluate what the Lord might be doing at that moment? Do you have any sense that God is working in your heart this evening? Has there been an increase in your understanding of the gospel and the things of God? This is where confession of sins comes in very handy. Are you more and more open to the person of Christ and the truth of Scripture and the demands of discipleship? Do you have a desire to respond to the things about which you have heard, to forsake confidence in self and your life of sin and trust in Christ alone? Fourthly, if we take this text, even if we do take it and use it for evangelism, if someone has opened the door of their life to Christ, notice this, the evidence will once again be ongoing fellowship. Because he said, if I come in, I will come in to dine with them. The evidence that a person has truly opened their life to Christ is continued fellowship with Christ. But is it not true, and don't tell me it's not, countless millions of people, because of our preaching, walk around, they have no fellowship with Christ, no desire for godliness, no seeking of God, but they believe themselves converted because one time in one of our churches they prayed and asked Jesus to come in. That's true. Now let me share with you, I have 45 seconds left. One of the greatest moments of my life was a few clicks south of Alaska. Some of you may have heard this story. But a man, as soon as I got up in the pulpit, about 25 people, a man walked in, giant of a man, saddest human being I've ever seen in my life, and he came and sat down on the front row. I immediately just stopped and started preaching the gospel. After I finished, I went down. I said, sir, what's wrong with you? What is wrong? He pulled out a manila envelope. And he just showed it to me. He said, I just came from the doctor. I'm going to die in three weeks. He said, I've lived out in the bush working on a working cattle ranch all my life. You can only get there by riding over the mountains or taking a float plane or something like that. He said, I've never been to a church in my life. I've never read a Bible. But one time I heard someone talking about a guy named Jesus, and, and I do believe there's a God. I've never been afraid of anything in my life, and I'm afraid because I'm going to die, and I don't know what to do. Now, I said, sir, for the last 45 minutes I have preached the gospel to you. The good news of what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. Did you understand it? He said, yes. Now, what would have most evangelists done at that moment? Would you like to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? But this is what he said. Brother Paul, I understood it. I mean, anybody could have understood it. But is that it? Is that it? I understand it now and I pray a prayer and that's it. And I went and started explaining repentance and faith. And after several minutes, he looked at me and he says, I just don't get it. I said, look, you have three weeks to live. I have to leave tomorrow morning. I'll cancel my plane ticket and I'll stay with you for three weeks until you die. Either you're saved or you die and go to hell. So let's begin. Listen to me. If you're thinking about being an evangelist, don't think you're going to preach to a whole bunch of people. When they come forward, you pawn them off on everyone else to do the counseling and you go to Denny's to eat.
and glory in all the decisions, most of which were just decisions and no one got converted because most of those people won't come back to church next Sunday. Now you understand, like Leonard Ravenhill used to say, now you understand why I preach in a lot of churches once. But I looked at that man and I said, Sir, faith cometh by hearing. Let's go through Scripture. We went through Scripture for over an hour. Every promise, Old Testament, New Testament, on and on. Just laboring until Christ be formed. We prayed some more. We read some more. Another hour goes on. It's getting late. I said, we're staying here. This man's dying. And then after I don't know how long, we got back to one of my favorite verses in the Bible, John 3.16. And I said, sir, I'll never forget because he had that Bible on his, on his legs, my Bible, and those big old hands of his. And I said, sir, let's just read through this again. He said, we've read through it so much. I said, sir, your life depends on it. And so he looked down, that big old man, and he goes, okay. For God so loved the world that he gave. Oh, oh, I'm saved. I'm saved. All my sins are gone. I have, my hands are clean. I, I have eternal life. Oh my, I haven't, I'm going to heaven. I said, sir, how do you know? He said, haven't you ever read this verse before? Do you see the difference? I, people say, are you against evangelism? I say, yes and no. I'm against your kind of evangelism. I hate it. That run men through, grab a little ticket, just like you were waiting at some government office for them to renew your license. Grab a ticket and go to heaven. We will be responsible. We are called upon. When I, when I preach in meetings and people, this is what I do. I don't give big altar calls and stuff. I say, look, it's, it's over. If God's dealing with your heart, you come to me. We will sit here all night. And if someone professes faith in Christ, then what do I do? I don't go, oh, you're saved, you're saved. I tell him this. I said, listen. If tonight you have truly repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you have become a child of God. But this is going to be the evidence. If you have truly repented unto salvation, you will continue repenting unto salvation and growing in repentance. And if you have truly believed, you will continue believing. None of this flu shot stuff. I don't want someone walking up to that person ten years later. They're living an ungodly life and someone witnessed to them and they say, Oh, don't worry about me. I done did that. Because that's what most people do in the South, isn't it? Don't worry about me, preacher. I done did that. You done did what? I got my flu shot. Yeah, but you didn't get Jesus. You labor with them. Let everyone else go out to eat. You labor. You pray. You counsel them with many gospel promises and many gospel warnings. I've declared war. It's like a little mite beating his head against a world of granite, but I don't care. I'm sick and tired of people 
being led into a decision with very little knowledge of the gospel, trusting in a decision rather than looking unto Christ, living in ungodliness and believing they're saved because some religious authority in the evangelical community told them they were, and they're almost completely insulated now from hearing a true gospel. Stop it. Stop it. All right, so that was Paul Washer on the idolatry of decision evangelism. So much of that I could completely, completely agree with. So tomorrow on the program, we're going to listen to Perry Noble's Easter sermon. And we're going to compare it to Scripture. New Spring Church is telling everybody that they're converting hundreds and hundreds of people that are making decisions to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they're experiencing life change. But have they repented of their sins and trusted in Christ and evidenced it through continued repentance, daily taking up their cross and following Christ and communing with Him and feasting on Him? Or is Jesus just a ticket to a more relaxed and freer lifestyle here on planet Earth? Well, sadly, we're at the end of another program. I want to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing you this program. You can... Uh, financially support us by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana zip code is 46038 I'd like to thank you for sticking with us good stuff today so um, anyway you can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook. My name's Chris Roseboro. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Yeah, I'm tweeting all the time. Pirate Christian's my name on Twitter. Hey, until tomorrow, may God bless you. <laughs>